There's a guy named Paul Salopek who's walking around the world in 10 years. And I, I like the way he describes walking. He calls it falling forward. It's a great image for me of the Christian life, falling forward. He's writing a blog for National Geographic, and one day he writes, walking is falling forward. Each step we take is an arrested plunge, a collapse averted, a disaster breaked. In this way, to walk becomes an act of faith. We perform it daily, a two-beat miracle, an iambic teetering, a holding on and letting go. For the next seven years, I will plummet across the world. I am on a journey. Isn't that neat? You know, I think you and I are on a journey as well. We're walking from a past that we can never retrieve towards a future that we can't yet see. The Bible tells us for everything there is a season, and yet the seasons change. And we need to appropriately change with those seasons. But how? How do we? Well, Jesus introduces us tonight to somebody who has something to teach us about falling forward, I think. His name is Zacchaeus. And we find uh, the account of his transformation in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Would you pull out a Bible and join me as looking at this passage? If you're grabbing the Pew Bible, you'll find this on page 854. Uh, and if you're able, would you please stand? Let's read this text together aloud as an act of worship. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Uh, it begins with the word he, which is a reference to Jesus. Let's start there. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. And then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Well, let's keep the Bible open. I mean, just, if ever there were a guy who transitioned well, if ever there were a person who changed appropriately for a new season, it's this man Zacchaeus. Look at the change in his life. Verse 2, Luke tells us he's a chief tax collector and a rich man. Now, let me just remind you how uh, the tax collection worked during Roman uh, oppression, during the Roman Empire. It was like a franchise. 
you would bid for the contract, you would front the money, and then you would be certified and protected by Roman soldiers, essentially, to extract as much taxes as you could possibly extract or as your conscience would allow from your fellow countrymen. And Zacchaeus did this well. He was a chief tax collector, which meant he had a fleet of underlings working for him. He was rich, and it wouldn't be surprising that he would be, even though Jericho, this is a fairly small town, it's on a major trade route that connects, a highway that connects Jerusalem with the Near East. So there are traders passing by, and once he had squeezed Jericho for all it was worth, he and his team could begin to extract money from people who are just passing through, just as Jesus, it looks as, as passing through. But he changes, doesn't he? I mean, this is really profoundly beautiful to me. In, in verse 8, he says, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor, half. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as, as much. I mean, this is hardly a tithe. Wow, this is a lot. By the way, when he says, if I have defrauded anyone, the Greek there doesn't mean if I have and I'm not sure whether I have or not. There's a Greek way of saying, if I have and I know that I have, uh, I, will, I will repay four times. Notice the restitution that's there. Now, it's not so much that he's no longer a tax collector. I don't think his job changes. And it's not so much that he's no longer rich. He has less money. But I'm guessing he's still a rich man at the end of the story. What changes, really, is his relationship to money. And I'd like to suggest tonight that nothing makes transformation more credible in someone's life when you see their relationship to money begin to change. The medieval Franks, when they were baptized, would go underwater and they would hold up their right hand, the soldiers, so that their hand would stay dry. And the reason for that is they wanted to be able to say this hand, their sword hand, had not been washed in the waters of baptism, so it was free to continue their marauding. As they think about that today, I think the modern equivalent for Americans, at least, of this is to go through the waters of baptism with their wallets held up. This is the one part of my life that is untouched by the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. And yet, when it does change, when your relationships changes to money, that's a credible transformation. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Because of these words in the Sermon on the Mount, Billy Graham said, if a person gets their attitude toward money right, it will straighten out almost every other area in their life. We've made that money that central to our lives. It's not just, though, that Zacchaeus' relationship to money changes. It's not just an internal attitude thing. I want you to understand that when that relationship changes, all of Jericho feels it. Just think for a minute. If I have defrauded anybody... I'll repay fourfold. He's defrauded virtually everybody in that town. He's sitting on a huge pile of money that really belongs to his compatriots in Jericho. So they're all going to get fourfold return. And those who are poor are going to get half. And I just have to believe that by the end of that week, there is rejoicing in Jericho. The hungry have food in their belly. Children have sandals on their feet. 
Sex workers are freed from slavery. Craftspersons have resources to purchase materials to sell to these traveling traders. I mean, Jericho is a different city. Economic and social justice begins to come to Jericho because of this transformation in one man's life. Justice comes. So I want to reflect with you on how this happens. I mean, this is a great beginning. He begins very well in this new life, uh, Zacchaeus does. How does it happen? Well, if Paul Salopek is right, walking is a two-beat miracle, let's consider two beats here in this conversion story. And the first beat describes the direction of this fall. If walking is falling forward, note the direction, forward. This seems to be the orientation of Zacchaeus's life. And this is my first observation. Zacchaeus moves forward into a new future. I think that when he runs ahead, seems to run ahead not only in space, but also in time, into the future. And I think when he climbs this tree, he doesn't just see Jesus. He sees in Jesus the future. And the reason I say that is the way that Jesus resolves this story. Notice verse 10. Jesus reveals to those who are listening that he is the Son of Man. The Son of Man, that's the phrase he uses. Now, that's a phrase associated with the future for the Jews of this day. It's a phrase that first becomes popular in the Old Testament because of Daniel, who has a vision of the future. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel has a, a vision of a son of man, a son of Adam, literally, a human being, but a special one who's in the glory of God's presence to whom is promised an eternal kingdom. And in time, Jews began to associate this figure that Daniel sees with a coming Messiah, a royal figure coming from heaven as a human being to bring salvation to all of creation, restore all to God's original intent to bring justice for all. It seems, therefore, that when Zacchaeus climbs that tree, somehow in seeing what, what Jesus later identifies himself as the Son of Man, he's seeing a picture of the future, of his future. So to begin well, what I'm saying is I think we need to orient ourselves to a new future, to an unexpected future. There's an advertisement on TV uh, about a young adult who's standing on a sidewalk and a fancy car pulls up. It's a car commercial. And the voiceover says, uh, would you like to see your future? Meaning like the car, I suppose. And then he gets into the car and it's himself 20 years later driving the car. It's his future self. So you've got these two guys driving the car and the young adult looks over at you know, his older self, his future self, and smiles because he thinks things are going pretty well in his future. And of course, he wants from this man what we would all want from an interview with our future self, some advice. Tell me, what do I do? What do I don't do? How am I going to get to where you've obviously gotten? And there's a, there is some advice. He says, the key is to stay hungry. And it's got a rich voice. Well, he drops the younger version of his, himself off at uh, back at the curb in front of, of course, a, a car dealership with beautiful glass doors. And uh, the future self rolls down the window and looks at the present self, and he says, go in there. Our wife is in there. It's the idea, if he goes in there, he'll meet his wife, 
And I just think about, that's pretty cool. What if my future self could come right now and, and tell me where to go and what to do to, to optimize my future? And in some way, I think this is what Jesus is doing for Zacchaeus. It's like Jesus is his future self. If you're a believer in, in Jesus, the Bible tells us that we are being transformed in the image of Christ. It tells us that Christ is being formed in us. So if you, you know, the only way you can see the future really is to look at Jesus and to see the one who's bearing today your future likeness. So for a believer, the question we want to ask ourselves is, what can I do today in this situation that I will be glad I did when I look back from eternity? When I was in college, I had a mentor. I was just beginning to, to get to know Jesus, and my mentor helped me tremendously in that. One of the questions he used to ask me is, where do you want to be when you're 50 years old? And he thought, you've got to be kidding me. I'm a college student. I'm obsessed about where I want to be Friday night, and I'm not even sure I'll be alive on Monday morning, right? If it's a really good weekend, I may not. Uh, but he said, no, you know, think of where do you want to be when you're 50? It's not so much that I ever had a very good answer to that question. I certainly didn't envision this. But what it did was it started to change the questions I was asking, better questions, not just questions of what do I do now, which test, which class, which major, but who am I becoming? Who do I want to become? And opened for me a whole consideration of the stewardship of my whole life. The point was that by 50, you want to be firing on all cylinders. You want to be ready to make your greatest impact. And if that's true, you need to think backwards from that desired future and begin to lay in the pieces of that one by one so that you're ready. Well, what I'm saying is to begin with, we need to orient ourselves to an unexpected future. And Zacchaeus seems to get this. Um, in Luke Acts, which is they're written by the same person, Luke, there's great concern for the poor. In Luke, Jesus is teaching about the poor and God's justice. In Acts, the Holy Spirit brings into existence a community that embodies that justice. Notice in Acts 2 and Acts 4, they're sharing all things in common. In Acts 4, there's a line that's quoting Deuteronomy 15. It says, and there, sh and there, were no, there was no one who had any need among them. And what they're saying is that promise that Moses had given, that God had given through Moses, that someday his salvation would come and take away every need. And with this beautiful picture of justice, it's already beginning to happen because of Jesus. It's beginning to happen because of his followers in Christian community. And Zacchaeus seems to get it. Something about his debt being forgiven, his sin, uh, it makes him want to go run around town and start forgiving other people's debts. And the town starts to change because of that. So Zacchaeus moves forward into a new future. That's the one beat of the two-beat miracle, moving towards a new future. But there's another beat, a second beat, and that's grace. So secondly, I observe that Zacchaeus falls, he falls forward, but he falls upon the grace of Jesus. You'll never, and here's why this is important, you'll never take a risk to change your life in a new season without knowing that it's safe to fail. In order to know it's safe, you need a source of grace in your life. Would you just think for a second about the difference between the crowd and Jesus as they relate to Zacchaeus? We hear what the crowd thinks about this moment of grace in verse 7 where it says, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. And Luke says, 
everyone was complaining. You're talking about the crowd. There is a sense when they say this of, of outrage. You know, he's gone to be in the house of a sinner. This is unacceptable. Moral indignation. Can you believe it? This is outrageous. This is shameful. And, and that's how they're relating to Zacchaeus, the crowd. Have you ever wondered how it is that Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name as he approached in the crowd? Some people think, oh, well, he's given divine knowledge. I don't think so. I think it's more likely that the crowd was laughing at Zacchaeus, that they were ridiculing him, possibly even that they were cursing him because they had a sense that they were on the right side. They perhaps anticipated that God was about to fulfill the promise that he had made in Malachi's day, that one day the Son of Man, the Messiah, would come as a refiner's fire, burning like an oven. Who can endure the day of his coming? Malachi had right. And who can stand when he appears? I will draw near to you for judgment, the Lord says. I will be swift to bear witness against the sorcerers, against the adul adul adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in their wages, against uh, those who oppress the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the alien. They know this. They see the future too. And, and so they're just, their anticipation is great. When Jesus sees Zacchaeus, who is the one guy who is the lowest life in that town, who they know deserves divine wrath. They're saying, stand back, but don't close your eyes. This is going to be awesome. This little guy is going to be toast. Let's quiet down and hear what Jesus has to say to him, right? And they're expecting Jesus to say, you jerk. You're going to go to hell. You're going to burn. You better change your life and change it quick. But what does Jesus say? The word of God is just so disappointing, right? What does Jesus say? Hey, what time's dinner at your house, Zacchaeus? Oh, what? Yeah, he says, sweet Zacchaeus, you know, I was planning on passing through Jericho and not stopping at all, but when I see you there, I realize my heart is bound to you, and I want to just spend some time with you. I think I'd like to spend the night with you. Actually, I have to spend the night with you because I really want to connect with you, Zacchaeus. And they're going, the crowd, they're going, what? What? What is this? And you know what it is? You know what it is. It's grace. This is the heart of God. Grace, radical grace, offensive grace, nearly intolerable grace. So that when we hear these words, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. I don't know about you, but I rejoice because I know that means he's coming to my house too. He's coming to break bread with me, a sinner, chief of sinners. Oh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. We get a beautiful picture of the gospel here in Zacchaeus. He's up in that tree in his sin, and Zacchaeus has sinned. There's no questioning that. But now he's absolutely exposed in that shame. And when this crowd comes, they want to nail him to that tree in moral indignation and self-righteousness. They want to nail him to that tree. And notice the one who will be nailed to the cross on our behalf 
Notice his response. He shifts the story. When that crowd leaves, they're no longer going to be outraged at Zacchaeus. They're going to be outraged at Jesus. Jesus so identifies with Zacchaeus' shame, he steps into that shame, and he diverts it from Zacchaeus to himself. And this is exactly what God does for us on the cross. It's almost like the rodeo clown. I don't know if any of you ever watch a rodeo. The history of the rodeo clown is not just to entertain the crowds. Originally, it was for safety. It was to provide an alternative target to save the life of the, of the rider on the, on the bucking bronco. Inevitably, the rider will be bounced off. And to save that rider's life, the clown will jump over the rail, put himself in harm's way, and say, take me, take me, over here, here I am. And the bull will center on the clown, and the clown will run as fast as he possibly can. And this is exactly what our Savior Jesus Christ said. In the midst of our human shame, Jesus steps in and says, it's about me, take me. And all of the moral outrage and all of the condemnation and all of the judgment, all of our shame diverts away from us and comes into him. And there he is nailed on the cross for us. This is the gospel. This is grace. Who has loved you enough to step into your shame, to lift it from your shoulders and put it on his shoulders? who have loved you so much that he will absorb and extinguish not just the outrage of the crowd around you, but literally the wrath of heaven against all evil. No one but Jesus. So to begin well, we need to fall into this grace. We're all going to fall. Stumbling is just part of walking through life. The Bible tells us all have sinned and fall short of the God. You can fall back on yourself or you can fall forward into the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I need this daily. I find myself, when I lose my temper and I get angry and I say something that's so unfortunate to my wife, I hurt her or a friend, here's what I'm tempted to do. I'm tempted to try to change myself with words of shame. I say to myself, you jerk. You know, that's shame. Or I say, you know, you better try harder. That's moralism. Or I'll say, I'm never going to let that happen again. That's self-righteousness. We think that with our shame, we can motivate ourselves to live a better life, but we're wrong. By the way, we in our culture today are really trying to drive change in the world by shaming people. Do you notice this in the news? I don't imagine since the day of Zacchaeus and the Pharisees in the first century, there's never been another generation more full of moral outrage, indignation, and shaming than this culture right now. And the impulse for change is so good, but shaming will never get us there. I mean, Zacchaeus has lived in Jericho for I don't know how many years, and they have shamed him every single day that he's been a chief ta tax collector. And it hasn't changed his heart at all. In fact, what it's done is it's hardened his heart. If anything, it's made him despise the people he's stealing money from. But what changes him is grace. That's what unlocks his life. Grace, it's grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears, relieved. That's the second beat of the two-beat miracle. It's to fall, but to fall into grace. And I think Zacchaeus would agree with the guy walking around the world 
that walking is falling, but falling forward. Let me finally suggest a practice for us tonight. If you want to begin well, I would commend to you this. This is the way I would say it. Get up and step today like you'll walk someday. When you fall, fall into his grace, but get up. Get up in grace and take a step like someday you'll walk when your salvation has been complete and the Son of Man returns. This is another way of talking about hope. Remember, we've said here a a thousand times that hope is not about wishful thinking in the Bible. Hope is about a confident expectation in a coming future that God has already promised and that's already begun in Jesus Christ. That's hope. A little acronym, H-O-P-E, heaven opened, Christ has come, promise engaged, living today with the promise that's coming from the future. So what about you? What's going on in your life? Are you entering into a new season? Maybe you've got a new roommate and it seemed like a good idea last spring, but now the socks are starting to smell. Or maybe there's marijuana. The only thing that's good about that is it covers the smell of the socks, but you weren't sure you were ready for all of that. Maybe you're in a new work, a job, or a new role, and and it's new people, and that's a bit of a challenge, and the task is challenging. You're feeling uncomfortable. That's hard. Maybe you've got a teenager in your life, a grandchild or a child who has just dropped into an abyss of depression, and you don't know anything about this, and you want to help but have no idea how. All you know is it's going to be a really long and hard and slow road. Maybe your spouse has just been diagnosed with early-onset dementia, and this is really scary. You feel like you're losing them. What are you going to do? I commend to you hope in Jesus Christ. I invite you to get up in grace and step today like you'll walk someday. Zacchaeus in that tree is in crisis, yet he can look from that tree at Jesus and see his future in this house where he and Jesus will have this joyful meal together. And that distance between that tree of crisis and that resolution in the future is the path, the new path. Maybe it's a path he's traveled hundreds of times, but now that he travels it with Jesus, it's fresh for him. And for us, the path from this table Breaking bread with Jesus into that future when he returns is our path. And we may walk the same courseway, but we can walk in a very new way because of the grace of God. My wife, as I told you, lost her father when she was 12 years old in a tragic plane crash. But she often says, you know, I I, I yearn for my father, and and I know that he's in heaven. He's with Jesus now because of his faith. But... I wonder what my dad would say to me in this situation or in that situation. I wonder what advice he would give me. In essence, she's wanting him to come from the future into her present and speak to her, almost like a future self would do. What does he think? What does this look like from eternity? Because he sees this long path that looks to us like pain and sorrow and brokenness, and he sees all of that overturned into the beauty of Jesus' grace. And we know that he would invite her to walk in that grace. Get up, you fell into grace. See that future someday, your likeness in Jesus, and walk today the way you'll be able to walk when you're made whole with him. And take one step towards that future.
In Kenya, Paul Salapak once asked a woman about a nearby village, and as soon as the words left his mouth, he realized this was a silly question, but he asked her, is that village a walkable distance? And she looked at him, she said, everything is. He said, of course, that's true. You know, there's a Chinese proverb that says, a journey of a 1,000 miles begins with a single step. And the truth of the matter is the way to begin well is to begin with Jesus and to know that every step of the way, he will walk faithfully with you. And remember, walking is nothing more than falling forward. Each step we take is an arrested plunge, a collapse averted, a disaster braked. In this way, to walk becomes an act of faith. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the good shepherd. You have laid down your life. You have come before us and the greatest threat to our existence. What would you now withhold from us? You who have given us every good and perfect gift. Help us to trust you with this crisis, with this transition in which we find ourselves. Help us to walk with you, taking comfort from your presence in the darkest valley, knowing that you lead us between, beside still waters and will make us to lie down in green pastures. We pray this in your powerful name and for your sake. Amen.